Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Fairuz Saad, Democratic candidate for Congress in Michigan's 11th district. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and what brought you to a run for Congress? Absolutely. Well, um, first, I, I just want to say it's a, it's a really, really a pleasure being on today. I, I really appreciate um, kind of being here and having the opportunity to speak with you all. I, I often say that my uh, my story really starts um, back in college because uh, I am a post 9-11. I say I came of age in a post 9-11 world in which I was really influenced by the events of 9-11 and, and every that came after that. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My, my parents came here over 40 years ago. They're immigrants from Lebanon, um, where, so I'm an Arab American, also a Muslim woman. You know, it was very interesting experience kind of growing up pre-9-11 in which I grew up in a community and really in a country in which I never really felt my identity and, and never really felt that I was in any way, any way not just American. After 9-11, that all really changed for me. It, it really kind of gave me a different perspective on how immigrants, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans are really viewed in this country. And it really propelled me into public service for a number of reasons. I, first of all, being the daughter of immigrants, you know, I say my parents came here very simply in search of the American dream. And I got into a career in public service because I wanted to protect that. I wanted to protect what brought my parents here and protect um, what gave them the opportunities that they had to find success in this country. And then kind of given everything that I saw you know, right after 9-11, one, kind of seeing the vulnerabilities of our country and, and its security, really wanting to protect our country, protect our borders. I, I went on to serve in the Obama administration at the Department of Homeland Security because I really believed in protecting my country and wanted to be a part of that and, and believed that that could be done without necessarily marginalizing or singling out specific communities. And finally, just believe that everyone here, everyone in this country should have those opportunities, have the opportunity to really see out the American dream and find success in this country and always believe that I had to do everything I possibly could to, to help you know, pr help promote that for, for Americans. So could you tell us um, about the work you did in the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama? I, um, so I served as a presidential appointee at the Department of Homeland Security in the Obama administration. I started off in the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and went on to the Office for Intergovernmental Affairs. And through, in, in both of these roles, my entire time there, I, I got to work on a number of national security projects from um, from emergency response. So I, I did some work in kind of supporting the department's efforts uh, after the deep uh, deep water horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010 to um, also did a lot of work around strengthening community policing efforts across the country as part of kind of counterterrorism efforts within the U.S. All of this was incredibly, really incredibly interesting and insightful. I uh, learned a lot about 
the needs of our country, you know, uh, how, you know, national security touches us in so many ways. Um, and then specifically working on community policing efforts across the U.S. Um, I got to kind of go across the country, go into communities all over the country and sit down with people in their cities, in their neighborhoods, in their towns, along with their local law enforcement, and have, you know, really sometimes difficult conversation around the public safety needs that people have, the challenges that they face, sometimes the uh, disparities and and the challenges in people working with their local law enforcement and local law enforcement working with the people that they serve. You know, we, we did a lot of work to really break down some of these challenges really break down barriers to information sharing within these communities so that at the end of the day, everyone could live in stronger, safer, more resilient communities. You know, I, I learned a, a number of things doing this. And um, one thing was that I really saw how much people appreciated when when government came to them to have these conversations and included them on these discussions. And, you know, the second thing is that there's just so many challenges that people face on a day-to-day level that go beyond what we think of as everyday public safety challenges, but nevertheless still impact our public safety safety and and kind of the security that we feel within our homes and within our cities and neighborhoods. It was really an incredible learning experience for me. So I'm interested in getting more of your thoughts on how to protect national security without marginalizing any particular communities, because you come from some of the communities that have been most marginalized by the Department of Homeland Security. How how did that dynamic work while you were uh, while you were serving in the department? It was. You know, I felt really fortunate to be there and to be able to play a role and and in those discussions and and have a have a seat at the table. Really, you know, one thing that propelled me into public service to begin with was that I always believed in that if if you want to have an impact on your country and on issues and values that you believe in, the best way to do that is by um, having a seat at the table and in being part of those discussions. And that's how I saw my role at the Department of Homeland Security, because I felt like here I was on the inside being part of conversations in which we were making decisions on how to protect our country, how to protect our borders, how to work with law enforcement, and how do we work with communities that the Department of Homeland Security didn't traditionally have a good relationship with. I I was lucky in that I, you know, worked with leadership. Um, I had the opportunity to really kind of give a different perspective, help people understand um, the perspective of these communities, of immigrant communities, of the communities that I come from, um, and, and represent to a certain degree you know, was really able to then also bring other people into the discussion because I on my own can certainly not, you know, I I can do my best to to represent in the best way that I know possible, but I can also have value in bringing other people into the conversation who can also give different and unique perspective based on where they are, where they live, the areas and the communities that they represent. And so one thing we did um, at the Department of Homeland Security is we created a working 
group. It's called the um, CVE Working Group. And we brought in, we helped identify individuals and leaders from across the country who uh, touch on this issue in different ways. So whether it's a local police chief who's Arab American, a, a community leader uh, from, from the Muslim community who is, you know, widely respected in his town or, you know, a, a, a counterterrorism expert who has years of experience working with local law enforcement and different national security agencies and, and brought them together to have these conversations and on, on what we needed to do to protect our country and, you know, make recommendations to the Department of Homeland Security on what more can we do to strengthen community policing in this country. So I'm curious about your thoughts on some of the agencies within the Department of Homeland Security. Recently, as you may know, the proposal to abolish ICE has gained a lot of traction on the left. We have a few candidates we've talked to on the podcast, including Dan Cannon, have uh, come out in favor of it. I'm wondering what your thoughts on this are. So prior to this, I worked as the Director of Immigrant Affairs for the Detroit Mayor's Office. And in this in this uh, role, I, I did a number of things. I, I was working with immigrant communities on economic development um, and, and really integrating them in the city of Detroit. I was helping resettle refugees. And, you know, I, I worked a lot with um, immigrant communities, both documented and undocumented and in a number of different capacities. And, you know, right after oh, Trump got elected, and for you know the months leading to his inauguration and after we were having a number of emergency town halls and meetings kind of bringing these people together one of the biggest things that we did was we did kind of know your rights forums and town halls and uh, things like that so people could be equipped with the information that they needed so that if they were to be stopped, they knew what their rights were, they knew how to protect themselves, you know, they knew how to speak to or work with local law enforcement, you know, if that included ICE or CBP agents. And the, the most important thing is and and I and I realized that um, you know you kind of asked a question specifically about the abolish ICE movement, but you know for me the role I've always played and what I've always felt my duty to the public was is working with them to equip them with the resources that they need, with the information that they need, and everything they need to be able to integrate into their, you know, their cities, their townships, their neighborhoods, their economies, their schools, and um, to be able to make sure that I was always seen as a partner and a resource and, and a trusted member of their government. That's what we need more of. We need people trusting their government and trusting those that serve them and their elected representatives and be able to kind of build those partnerships more so that we, we understand what we're working towards, what our governments are doing, what what are the programs that they're enacting. And, you know, part of that was also meeting with local ICE agents and local CBP officials. And again, you know, having difficult conversations, but they were open to at least having those conversations and meeting with us and having those discussions. You know, there, there was an, an ICE and CBP agent who gave their cell phone numbers to people around the room and made himself available in case anything would come up. And so I only 
only emphasize this and say this to say that, you know, those are the those are the type of things we need more of. You know, those type of partnerships, that type of transparency, the openness to be able to have those conversations at all levels of government, so that we can work towards solutions. And at the end of the day, you know, you know, protecting the people that we have here. So, so with that, in the mission statement of ICE, uh, they outline that their mission is to, uh, quote, remove all deportable aliens, get rid of any undocumented person. And as we've seen, there's really no limits on that. So I'm wondering if you think that an agency created with that purpose has a place in our immigration policy. And additionally, what you would do as a member of Congress to stand up for undocumented Americans. I'll say that, you know, what we've seen, you know, over the last few administrations is that who's in power and who our president is and who our elected officials are um, can really make a difference on the tone of our immigration policies in this country and, and what we do with our immigration policies in this country. You know, I, I like I said, I, I worked with both immigrants you know, documented and undocumented um, to help integrate them, bring them into society, bring them into the city of Detroit, help them kind of get access to any um, resources that they might need, whether it's to buy a home, to start a job, to expand their business. We also created a municipal ID program. Basically, it's a local ID program that can be available to any resident within the city of Detroit, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of their um, criminal uh, record and regardless of their wh whether or not they have permanent residence in the city. The, the purpose of that was to really protect all residents of Detroit and make sure that they felt that they belong there and that once encountered with local law enforcement that they would have an ID and a, and a way to identify themselves. We were able to do this because we had um, an elected leader and an administration that be believed in this, that believed that we, we needed to protect all the residents of Detroit. That is the problem that we're seeing right now in the country is we have an elected leader who doesn't have an informed view on immigrants and on immigration in this country, um, both documented immigrants and undocumented immigrants. I think that is why we see we're seeing the movements that we are seeing now is because it's uh, he's just put a very volatile a narrative out there that's divisive and that is demonizing people who uh, for the most part are here and and are living otherwise you know legally and contributing back to our economies and our cities and our our um, and our states and so you know I believe we really have to do everything we can to to protect those and and those that are otherwise um, violent criminals, then those are the ones that we need to be focusing on. But that's not a majority of the undocumented immigrants we have in this country. And so I think, first of all, we need more elected leaders who understand this and are ready to talk about it and able to talk about it in an informed way. And that's what I'll bring to Congress. You know, not only um, my background as the daughter of immigrants and having a different view on immigration because of that, but having worked with many of these people at all levels and understanding their stories and understanding what, what they are bringing to the U.S. and how we all benefit from having them here and being able to talk about that again and again. I, I say something that I learned in 2016 
was that the narrative in this country really makes a difference. The way our elected leaders talk about these issues and talk about people really then goes on to inform public opinion and public policy. And so that's what we need more of. We need more elected leaders who are ready and able to talk about it in an informed way. And so that's one thing I'll do. And then you know, the second thing, as you mentioned, I certainly support DACA. I think we need to do everything we can to protect dreamers, make sure that that we keep them here and and enable a pathway to citizenship for them. You know, I sat with uh, a dreamer here in the district. He lives in the district. He works in the district. He goes to school in the district. He's studying to be a school counselor so that he could go on and do the same for high school students that a counselor did for him. And, you know, he sat here and now has no idea what his future looks like because of what's happening in Congress and, and because of the president. He is one, uh, one story of many of why I want to go to Congress to, to help protect people like him. You mentioned how Donald Trump kind of corrodes the public rhetoric. Do you see him here as the problem or the symptom of a problem? Because, you know, for example, with ICE, as I mentioned, uh, it's kind of founded on the idea that we need an entire agency to deport undocumented people so that undocumented people are inherently going to pose a threat. You talked about the Islamophobia post 9-11 and, you know, who belongs. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the threat that white supremacy poses to national security and how you see Donald Trump fitting into this dynamic? The way he he talks about things. I mean, he's essentially created a government that he's, in the way he talks about it, is a way is that there's winners and losers, and that you can't have a government, uh, that you can't have a country that protects dreamers and also protects children's health insurance. And it's just one example of, of the many ways he's, he's tried to kind of set up this narrative. And I, I think that that's the problem. I mean, our elected leaders have a very important role to play in how we understand um, public policy and how we understand the way our government should be run and, and what are the values that we hold here in America. And, and part of that is that, you know, again, this very simple concept of the American dream and that, you know, everyone should have access to the American dream and it should very much stay alive regardless of who you are, what your background is, what your religion is, you know, where you come from, whether across the world or even within the U.S. And that's that's being threatened right now by him, by his administration and, and by the, the, the values that he represents. First, uh, one of the most important things that we need to do is push back against this narrative and continue to promote a, a narrative that it really promotes the idea of the American dream that we are all equal, that we all have a right to be here, and that we all belong, regardless of, of what he says and thinks. I, I just think that, that that's incredibly important and that we can't forget how important it is in, in the role that the narrative plays in this country, especially when it comes from our elected leaders. I'm really glad that you mentioned the importance of narrative. I think that's something that Democrats forget a lot, and they end up caving to right-wing narratives, which is a losing strategy. I I'm not sure if you saw, but recently Senator Kamala Harris of California went on cable news to defend ICE, and she ended up propagating kind of the right-wing narrative that we need it for violent criminals. Could you tell us about the importance of electing Democrats 
will offer alternative narratives and what exactly those alternative narratives need to be. I'm so glad you uh, asked that. If it's not already clear, <laughs> you know, this is something that is that is so important to me. And I often say, like, look, I'm I'm a progressive. Uh, it is uh, one of the main things that I'm running on. I often say that I'm unapologetically progressive. Uh, part of that is is also I'm tired of sending. Democrats to Washington who look and sound like Republicans and who feel like we have to play on the Republican narrative in order to win or get things done. And in the process, then we, we lose our values, we lose what we stand for. I, I think it's incredibly important, at least for myself and for my campaign, to remain true to, to those progressive values and the things that we believe in. You know, we have from the very beginning, and will continue to do so, say that, you know, we believe and I believe in Medicare for all. You know, we really need to do everything we can to work towards Medicare for all in this country. We need to change the, the narrative around healthcare. Healthcare is a right. It's not a privilege. And we have to say that again and again and again and again. And that it's stop having conversations about how much is it going to cost us for Medicare for all, but what is it costing us to not have it? What is it costing families? We need to switch the way we talk about things that are so important to Americans and American families in this country, like healthcare, you know, the economy and jobs is another one. Having access to a good paying job that if you work a full-time job, you should be able to take care of your family. Education, again, should be a right in this country. You know, people should be able to, kids should be able to go to a school in their neighborhood that they can get to that you know, where they have access to a good education, and frankly, and then are able to be safe and live uh, and be in an environment in which they feel protected as well. And so it's, I think these are some of the alternative narratives, as you said, that we, that we need to speak more of. Switching gears a little bit, you've done a lot of work fostering civic engagement and electoral participation, especially within the Muslim American community. Could you tell us more about that work and how you plan to use that experience to engage people in this race? Absolutely. I think that one of the most, one of the best parts of any campaign for me and in really any any public service job I've had has really been being able to work in the field, you know, working with the people on the ground. Um, for, for this campaign, I say it's, it's going to be won and lost in the field. We're taking it as an opportunity to really be able to meet with folks, talk to them, have house parties, have really intimate conversations with people like in their homes or even in their businesses, in their schools, in their community centers, regardless of where it may be. And, you know, really try and learn from people about what are the issues that are important to them? What are the things that they're dealing with? And, you know, being able to answer questions about what I believe in and how our values and our issues align and how I can go to Washington to fight for them and, and how I hope to go to Washington to fight for them. Uh, I tell people, I'll come and sit with you no matter how little or big the group is. You know, I've, I've been in people's homes in which five people have showed up. It's one of the most important pieces to any 
campaign, but then also serving in elected office is having that relationship with the people that you are trying to serve or that you serve, ensuring that there's always an open line of communication. Uh, and this is why I've done a lot of the work I have around civic engagement and promoting civic engagement within different communities is because a lot of times I've worked with communities who maybe haven't always had the experience or haven't had the um, the access that they felt they needed to be able to have those conversations with their elected leaders or to to feel that their vote matters you know it's it's an important piece of the electoral process to find the people who align with on your values voting for them in office and then holding them accountable to the things that you elected them for. All right, so lastly, where can folks find you online? Yeah, my um, website is www.fayruzsad.com. Usually spell it out for people because um, normally it's not very intuitive on its own, um, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, almost every single social media outlet that you can possibly think of as SAD for Congress, which is S-A-A-D. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, this was uh, really fun, so I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.